Divine Truth Documentary Jesus, Mary and Others provide information to people or organizations that produce documentaries. In this video, Jesus is interviewed by Thomas Leder while staying with Thomas and his cameraman Simon. This is Session 6, Part 1, filmed on the 14th of August 2013 in Malulaba, Queensland, Australia. Let's give it a whirl. Let's give it a whirl. Okay. <clears throat> so if we go back a little bit, um, can you describe to me? <laughs> Sometimes I think when you say that. Where about? How far back? back <laughs> <you're in the laughs> studio, <yeah>. Quite far <laughs> back, actually. Um, can you describe to me um, your crucifixion? Um, certainly. What would you like to know about it? I'd like to know um, what happened. Well, if you have you watched the Passion of the Christ, yeah. if you have seen that, then if you take a, take out all of the implications that the devil was behind it, <laughs> and uh, basically it went a bit overboard at the end in terms of the amount of uh, amount of whipping that I got, uh, in the sense that it, they didn't do my front as well. There's sort of there's this sort of time in that movie where it's sort of shows me as a little bit obstinate and almost asking for another whipping almost and that never happened i was i was mostly whipped on my back and my legs and my buttocks and the, those kind of things but not so much on the front uh, occasionally on the front but not so much on the front but aside from that all of that was pretty accurate in terms of um the beating i received it was uh you know i found it very hard to to move after that obviously um then I found it, I lost a lot of blood during that uh, as well, which meant I started to, you know, not have the strength that I would normally have. I was, uh, in the first century, I was around six foot tall, and I was quite strong uh, compared to the average person. In terms of the carrying of the uh, so-called cross up to the, up to the hill, I carried a pole up the hill rather than a cross, um, and... And that was eventually what I was nailed to. So I was nailed to a vertical pole, not to an actual cross. Because Pilate wanted to make a point that uh, the Jews were the people who really chose to have me killed. And he wanted to kill me the way the Jews would normally hang a person, which was normally on a stake rather than a cross. And so I was hung the Jewish way. Whereas the other two people who were called the evildoers to my right and left, and they were hung in the Roman way. So they were hung on crosses. And I was hung on a pole. And on top of the pole, uh, Pilate wrote a message basically trying to snub the Jewish Sanhedrin by saying that uh, instead of saying he called himself the king of the Jews, he wrote on this message, king of the Jews, and put it at the top of the pole, much to the Sanhedrin's uh, annoyance actually at the time and they asked him to take that down and he refused to do so um, in terms of my own pain and so forth and suffering it wasn't any more pain and suffering than the average person going through a similar experience would experience in the sense that it's not like there's sort of this uh, feeling that is in many people particularly Christians that for some reason because I was taking on the sin of the world which is not true actually but they believe that it's true that for some reason because I was taking on the sin of the world that meant my pain was even more 
so than any other person who'd been crucified in the same manner or beaten in the same manner. And that's not the case at all. In fact, because I was at one with God, I could manage the pain relatively well. And actually, Mary had more difficulty uh, with my physical pain than I did because when you start to have a connection soul to soul, the emotions that flow and the feelings that flow through one half of the soul flow through the other half too. So Mary actually had more uh, distress at my pain uh, watching me be beaten and also watching the crucifixion than I actually had. So I didn't experience a huge amount of pain. Um, there was a time just before my death that uh, I'm meant to have cried out and said, you know, why have you forsaken me to God? And that never happened. I never, I knew God hadn't forsaken me. Um, and I never had those kind of thoughts actually through my crucifixion. I knew it was totally the actions of people on earth that, that had decided upon my crucifixion. So I never um, made any comments to God that God had forsaken me or anything like that. And I died relatively quickly because of the amount of blood that I'd already lost during, during the whipping that I received. Um, the whips were very similar to as described in that Mel Gibson movie. They had usually they had uh, spikes on the end of them and claws on the end of them, and they had uh, sort of like fish hooks almost on the end of them. And so you would get pretty much uh, ripped up. And as a result of the ripping of a lot of parts of my body, I bled a lot. And as a result of bleeding a lot, I didn't. I lost my strength during carrying the stake up to the up to the hill to Golgotha and and I also lost a lot of blood and so I wasn't um, you know as as clearly sense sensing all of the pain as what I probably would have normally if I hadn't lost a lot of blood and and eventually um, I needed help actually to carry that parts true in the Bible that I needed help to carry the stake up the hill and in fact in the end the guy that was helping pretty much half carried me as well as the stake up the hill pretty much because I, I, I was pretty much spent by then. And I was pretty conscious of everything going on around me emotion-wise still and conscious of Mary's emotions, of my mother's emotions. There were two other women present, Salome, John, John, the Apostle John's mother. Uh, she was present as well and another friend of Mary's was present and um, Rachel, her name is, and... And so they, you know, I was conscious of their feelings of what was going on. John was also present, the Apostle John. So, um, but there were very, very few other people who, whom I knew that were present at, at the actual crucifixion because, firstly, the majority, uh, um, it was sort of done in a fairly distant way from the majority of people for a start. And secondly, the people who, who were you know following us up to that point became very frightened and that they, they would be next and so many of them hid hid in the city in Jerusalem or or outside of the city and so very few of them got to see the crucifixion at all aside from Mary my mother uh, a few other women and a, a couple of men there was there, were, there was only two men in fact present one was John and the other one was John Mark who finished up writing the book of Mark and they were the only people present at my crucifixion. So if we just stop there, I'll leave that on my sword. Then uh, as, as the uh, 
as I died, I, I, obviously as soon as I died, my physical body separated from my spirit body and soul. And as a result of that, I started floating above my body. Uh, it was still hanging on the stake. And um, the Roman soldiers weren't certain as to whether I died or not yet. And so they actually speared the side of my body uh, up into the heart. Um, but my heart had already torn apart. So, um, so that, and I'd already died, so I didn't feel all of that. When a person is hung with their hands above and, and most of the weight is carried by this portion of the body and eventually it starts the the inside organs start tearing apart from each other and that's what happened to myself so that's how i died i died by my organs and particularly the organs around and my lungs and heart starting to tear apart because my muscles couldn't hold them all in the same position anymore and uh, and eventually um as a result of that i i passed separated from the physical body and I then hovered above my body um, watching the proceedings. So from then on I was watching the proceedings rather than being involved in them really. So it was really just a body on a stake. They broke my legs as well uh, when my body was dead um, just in order to hasten the process because Pilate and the Sanhedrin wanted the, the task completed before the Sabbath began. And it was the day of the that the Sabbath would have begun, and so they hastened my death, or what they thought was hastening my death, by spearing me and and, and try breaking my legs so that all of the weight pulled apart the body. Uh, but I was already dead by that stage, so I didn't experience the pain of that. Um, so I, I then watched them take down the stake, uh, take me off the uh, stake. They left. They gave the body to Mary, my wife, and uh, and then Mary and a few others carried my body to a to a nearby home in Jerusalem, and they started embalming my body. And at that stage, there was a lot of grief for all of my mother, my, Mary, and uh, the other women, and and John and Mark uh, present. They all had a lot of grief that they were feeling at the time. My father had bought a tomb some years prior when he decided that he was going to become a member of the Sanhedrin, which he was a member of the Sanhedrin that condemned me to death, but he wasn't present at the voting of, uh, you know, at, at the decision time. But he was a, actually a member of the Sanhedrin at the time of my death. Um, but he bought a tomb, um, which is now in the Bible referred to as the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It, it's sort of a way to distance myself from my father. There's a constant, there's a constant thing in the Bible of trying to distance me from my father by by refer any reference to Joseph is is always a reference directly to Joseph, not not as my father or as somebody else like Joseph of Arimathea. The reality is, there was a Joseph of Arimathea, but he was not my father, and my father is the person. <coughs> Sorry. There was a Joseph of Arimathea, but uh, he was not my father. And, but it was my father who owned the tomb and not Joseph of Arimathea. So, so my father had bought this tomb, a family tomb that he bought in, near Jerusalem. And eventually that's where it was where I was buried. And of course I watched my own burial. And I was trying to be with all of the people involved in the embalming of my body 
in order to just, you know, help them come to terms with their grief and so forth. Um, I foretold to the disciples that, um, who were present that uh, I would return uh, to them, so after my death, and I told them that I would return to them around three days or th after my death. I calculated that time based upon how long it was going to take for me to decompose my own body out of the tomb uh, because I could hasten the decomposition process of my own body. So I decided to decompose my own body so that if anybody checked the tomb, they would realize my body wasn't present anymore. And I wanted to do that so that anybody, so that anybody coming to the tomb and opening the tomb wouldn't be able to then claim that I'm still lying there. And so how I, did you do that? Well, it's very uh, simple actually. It's very much the same as the decomposition processes that occur now. So let's say you put a bit of, you know, if you put a vegetable outside and in the sun and uh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Is it finished? Yeah. <laughs> um, so how did you decompose your body? Well, it's very much the same as decomposing anything. Um, you notice that if you put a vegetable material, any material on uh, you know, outside in particular in the elements, over a period of time it slowly disappears through natural processes. Um, of course, uh, many times it's insects and other things, but if it's in a tomb, obviously there's not too many of those present, uh, but decomposition still occurs. And what all I did was, I knew the laws involved with decomposition is about providing extra oxygen to the process. So all I had to do is provide extra oxygen to the process and speed up the process of decomposition. And in doing that, uh, I finished up decomposing the body within two days. So how, did, how did you provide extra oxygen? It's a matter of uh, channeling uh, energy. It's like, um, if you can, you know right now, right, that your entire body is just really energy. There's no, you're not really a physical person that, uh, you know, the only reason why it feels physical is because you, we, our energy is dense and therefore we're able to touch it but but it's actually vibrating energy you know, electrons running around a nucleus is the understanding nowadays and it's not strictly correct completely because there are actually smaller particles that also are in rotation inside of each cell and inside of each in, inside of each um, atomic structure but once you understand how the energy flows you can start channeling and, or moving that energy from one location to the other location relatively easy. The problem in the tomb was that there was not much light available for decomposition. Decomposition will speed up with, with light, speed up with heat, speed up with oxygen and so forth. There's certain processes that you can speed up decomposition. And so all I did was provide all of those particular elements with the energy that I had from my own spirit body uh, to speed up the entire process and and in in speeding up the process decomposed the body completely within two days rather than it being years that it would have normally have taken to decompose perhaps even hundreds of years uh, sometimes and and in in doing that I set the stage if you like for somebody if anybody decided to open the tomb to prove my earlier claims false 
all I had done was speed up some of the things that I knew from God's laws of nature so that it decomposed the body and that way anybody opening the tomb would then see the body missing and uh, and since the Sanhedrin had posted two guards outside of the tomb it would have been pretty hard to answer the question of where the body went and uh, and that's exactly what finished up happening and they knew my claim of course uh, before I died so they posted sentries to make sure no one would steal the body because that's what they were worried about. They were worried that somebody would come along, steal the body, and then claim that uh, I'd been resurrected in some way. Of course, there's no such thing as really as the resurrection either because it's not really a resurrection. You're instantly in your spirit form. Your physical body can no longer be uh, automated by any energy anymore because the the method of automation is through what's called a silver cord, which is an energetic stream that connects the spirit body and the material body. And that cord got severed during my death, which gets severed during everybody's death, of course. And so it's impossible then for a, a, a body to be reanimated after the separation has occurred. So, um, and I knew that, I knew that before I died. So, so. One of the things that I then did was I allowed myself to um, like take to pull together matter in a very similar way that I pulled together energy in order to decompose my body. I could also pull together matter and form a body. And so I formed a body, which I then animated using my condition and appeared to Mary first. Mary was, uh, this, so this was now three days later, basically. It's not three full days, but, but it's, but it, it was a bit later, um, after I decomposed the body, I appeared to Mary. How did you make the body? How did you form the body? Well, again, it's... How did you know that you could? Well, all this knowledge, once you become at one with God, there is so much knowledge that becomes available to you about the laws of the universe. Much more knowledge than before you're at one with God. And so once you become at one with God, it's like all this knowledge, and it's not complete knowledge, you, you don't know everything, but there's a lot more than you know that you, that you knew beforehand. And you know about how the laws work, like what laws govern the movement of matter, for example, what laws govern the physical body and how it works, what laws govern how matter can be pulled together and dispersed. Uh, what ha what controls the dispersal and the pulling together of matter, which is actually all about using your will in harmony with love in a certain direction. And the will is so powerful that you're able to pull together, you know, the different elements that you need from that that are actually mostly available in the air around you, in fact, and pull them all together to form a map to form matter. And and so that's all I did. I just basically pulled together the matter. Uh, using my will in harmony with love, pulled together the matter in the manner that I'd learned through this relationship with God so that I could create a body. And in fact, right now, there are people right on the earth right now who are actually spirits who have pulled together matter in the same way. And so it's a fairly common occurrence, much more common than what people believe, in fact. And in fact, there are many times within a person's personal life that they may meet a person who is actually a spirit who has pulled together matter and formed a human body. And there's no way that a person on earth can actually tell the difference. But when they try to trace down the person 
and find out where they live and all those other things, they find the person doesn't actually exist. And that's a very common occurrence actually on the planet. There are many people who experience that in the course of their life. So it's a very common occurrence that spirits who have that knowledge can pull together matter and actually create a body that they can animate. Can you just explain to me what you mean by matter? Well, any matter larger than an adamantine particle, which is the smallest particle uh, that we know of as spirits that exists on the earth, um, can be pulled together and then manipulated. So you can actually create atomic structure through that process. So this energy is present everywhere. And in fact, when you're a spirit, you see it in many cases, particularly if you've become very developed in love, you see how the matter uh, connects, where the structure of it and how you can manipulate it. And it's all, but, but you are governed by the laws as to how you manipulate it. So you, you can't, um, and, and maybe the best way to illustrate is this. How does a woman who basically um, receives the sperm into the egg and then all of a sudden nine months later there's a child where did all that matter come from well it obviously came from within the woman herself all that matter that constructed the child came from within the woman through her in digestive processes and, and and all the elements needed to construct the different forms of matter based on the genetic material and its construction all got formed through a process that there are so many laws that govern and we're used to this every day like when a child you know is conceived and then is born we expect the child to be nine months uh you know mature rather than just a cell structure that hasn't grown and where did all that matter come from it came from the formation of the body through obeying the law of the genetic structure and the laws of life which both of these laws are laws that God has made in order to formulate and construct eventually what becomes a child, the body of a child. And in fact, these kind of laws apply to all animals, usually all mammals uh, as well, are all constructed in a very similar way. Now, if you know those laws as a spirit, then of course it makes sense that you can construct a body without needing to go through the process of you know, having be conceived, wait nine months later until you're nine, you know, nine months, uh, you know, and then and then born, and then and then wait until you're twenty before, you know, you've got to the age that is relatively mature. You can you can do all of that without needing to go through a process that is automatic, is automated through this that most people don't understand at all yet. Uh, that is automated through the birth process. Now that process can be constructed by a spirit and therefore a body can be constructed in exactly the same manner. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. So I think there's an analogy that was... Yeah. And in fact, the exact same laws that govern the formation of the body of the child are the same laws that the spirit has to understand and use in order to construct a body that the spirit can animate. So um, it's exactly the same laws that are involved with the construction of the body of the child with the exception that you're creating a mature body right from scratch. You're not actually having to go through a growth process. But the genetic material is a requirement, so you have, the genetic material has to be present and, uh, and you can construct the body. And then you can dematerialize it immediately afterwards as well, using a very similar process in reverse. So, so um, everything all right? Everything good, yeah. 
Why would a spirit want to create a body? Well, there are many spirits that want to create bodies. Not all of them can because they don't have the knowledge of how to do it. The spirits who do have the knowledge of how to do it have to be very close to at one with God or near or out of one with God. So they have to be usually above the fifth dimension in their development. Now, why a spirit would want to do it, it depends on their motivation. So their motivation might be to teach somebody something. Their motivation might be to influence somebody on the earth who's in a distressed time of their life in a direction or, or I would say provide a suggestion to influence them in a direction without harming their will, for example. Um, so, for example, if I, if I know you're very depressed and about to commit suicide and you're walking down to do it somewhere outside and I have the ability to try to prevent you not by force, because that would be against God's laws and that's not possible, but by suggestion, then I could decide to formulate a body so that you just think I'm a normal person, walk up to you and start a conversation with you that you eventually engage. And, and then I learn through that conversation you're about to die, which I already knew, but, but which I can then make suggestions to, to you as to why you possibly shouldn't take that action. And, uh, and so that's a great way of helping a person on earth make a different decision without actually the person realising that they're talking to a spirit and without the person realising that they're actually, that, that the person they're speaking with is actually someone unusual. And it also means that that person still has their will engaged. So in other words, the person is still allowed to use their will. It's still a decision on their own back. They still need to make it. But now you've had the ability to influence their decision to a degree, to prevent them from doing something that might damage their future progression uh, just by making a suggestion. So there are times when you want to do that as a spirit, and there's many spirits that are involved in doing that, in fact. So it's only done, so that's only possible to do in a loving way. Yes, but also there's one other restriction placed upon it, and that is this, that it's impossible. There's, a, there's some laws that govern, that some of God's laws that govern a spirit materialising a body to tell you something about your life and you identify the person as a spirit who's telling you something about your life. So there's a law that involves the, the disclosure of that information and there's a law that involves what kind of information the spirit can actually or is allowed to share with you actually. If the Spirit is going to share with you a truth, a divine truth, a God's truth, what, you know, remember every time we refer to the term divine truth, we're referring to God's truth, not our own. So if, if the Spirit wishes to share a divine truth with you or one of God's truths with you, he is prevented from doing so unless you go through the process of personal discovery of that truth. And the reason why that is, is because God basically wishes all of humanity to go through their own process of discovery of truth, rather than have that process being influenced by someone who's in a completely different condition, who's already discovered all that truth, who is not on earth. Um, because as you can imagine, if, if, if all of those spirits could all of a sudden all materialize and just say, we're from, you know, from the spirit world, we've got some truths to share with you. Yeah, most people would listen to those truths, perhaps, but at the end of the day, they wouldn't be their own. It, it wouldn't be something that they would actually have had to discover themselves, and therefore it's not a personal experience. And if it's not a personal experience, then it's highly unlikely they'll know what to do with that truth. Highly unlikely. 
And so there are laws that govern the sharing of truth on the planet by a spirit. A spirit can only share truth on the planet through the mediumship process. He can't do it through a process of materialization and then sharing at this point in time. And that may change based on what people on earth desire. So it's all based on the will of people on earth. The majority of people on earth do not want to believe in spirits. They do not accept that spirits have any impact in their life. Many of them do not even believe in an afterlife. And until those beliefs change, it's going to be impossible for spirits to materialize and share truths on, on earth. Once that changes, so once the earth changes and the people generally, most people on earth change to the point where they believe that there is a spirit world, they know that's where they go after they pass from this earth, they have their desire to communicate with those spirits, they realize the truth of all those kind of truths, then the law is that all of those spirits who wish to share these truths can materialize and share these truths. But it has to happen after the awareness of inside of the human inside of humanity has developed to such a point that the majority of humans believe these things. And if that takes another thousand years, then it takes another thousand years. But it's also potentially possible in the next ten years. It just depends on how people respond to divine truth in the end. So once we get to the point where we're in this condition where on earth where we accept all of the ideas and concepts of truth relating to what happens to our body after we die, what happens to our spirit body after we die, what happens to our soul, and, and the fact that we can communicate with spirits, then communication with spirits will be far more seamless than it currently is. So now it can only be obtained by people who are in unique condition with regard to spirit communication, who have an openness to that communication. In the future, it can be obtained by any person if we all engage a different form of belief system. And my suggestion to people is you don't have to believe it, you can prove it through processes that you can undertake from a scientific perspective. But the problem on the planet is that we, we avoid all ex experiments that will disprove our current belief. Generally, that's what we do. So, how, so can you, how, can you, how can you prove it? Well, it is very, very easy, in fact, to prove. Um, there are many, many hundreds, of, if not millions, of, of mediums on the planet. And many of them can, can have so much clarity that they can tell you the date, time, and, and de death of any person that comes to them. And all of that information generally, if it's only a few years old, can all be re rapidly verified. And so it's obvious that these particular people are talking to somebody. It's also possible to set up uh, mechanisms by which matter gets moved by those same spirits, which would be proof. There's also devices that we can make, actual devices, like, like electronic devices, but made with different materials, that can allow spirits to project an image of themselves in the physical. And all of these kind of devices and things can all be made scientifically. But nobody on the planet wants to do it. Nobody with the skills that, to do it on the planet wants to do it because it would prove a lot, of, or rather disprove a lot of their current belief systems if they do it. So this is the conundrum that we face as humanity. Oftentimes people don't want to engage a form of experimentation that will result in a disproving of their own belief system. They're happy to engage experimentation that results in them proving their belief system, which is very limiting, of course, in terms of our development as humanity. But 
it's not very very good in terms of our discovery of new scientific truths. So scientifically, we have the ability to come up with all sorts of devices that enable communication between the spirit world and Earth and people on Earth in the physical and, are, and, and therefore verify the existence not only of a spirit world, of other, in other words, of dimensional existences other than this dimension, but also verify that people who have left this dimension have passed into that dimension. And there are lots of ways that we can, uh, and lots of experiments we can construct to prove all of these things, but that's not going to happen until people are willing to go through the process of constructing those particular things and open enough, scientifically open enough, with the skills, open enough to develop such equipment and apparatus in order to verify these particular facts. So, so that all came from a discussion about how what I did when I died. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so if we go back there, we, we go, go back to that there. point yeah. and take off from there. Okay, so after after that period of time where I decomposed my body and I, I then constructed and formulated my uh, new bodies, many new bodies. In fact, I appeared close to 500 times to different people with 500 different bodies, actually, So uh, during the period of the next 40 days. So, so there was around 500 people who could verify that I actually appeared to them. They're all, of course, now in the spirit world, but they were living on Earth at the time who could verify that I appeared to them after my death. And, of course, one of those persons was Mary, my wife. Uh, I appeared to her many times during that period. But also ones like John uh, and, and most of what you know uh, or the Bible calls the disciples or the apostles. I appeared to all of them. And I appeared to many groups as well. So there were many times that a group of them were together and they were grieving and I appeared in front of the group as well and had a t discussion with them about the truths of what I'd shared with them before I died and what and what I was proving to them by my appearing to them after I died. And so they, as you can imagine, that established the faith that they needed to, to go ahead with their own understanding of what I'd already taught. See, up till that point in time, even though I'd taught a lot of God's truth to them, most of, most of the people, aside from Mary and a few others, struggled to believe anything I said to them, to be honest. Just like how, how nowadays most people struggle to believe anything I'm saying to them now. And as a result of that, um, I had to actually provide some kind of physical evidence. And I felt the best possible form of physical evidence to provide would be evidence of my continued existence after I'd supposedly been murdered right in front of their eyes. And I thought that would be a great opportunity. And I knew the laws that are involved that would allow me to do that. And so I engaged those laws uh, appropriately so that I could construct these bodies, a number of them, as I said, uh, over 500 of them, uh, at different times during the next 40 days. And so I appeared to many, many of the people who knew me during that period of time. And as a result, established the proof that there is life after death. And that's why Christianity has this unique understanding compared to many other religious forms that there is life after death. And many religions before Christianity came into being did not really firmly believe in a life after death. Even amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees that I grew up with, um, many of them, although they had some kind of loose concept of what life after death may be, 
they didn't have any firm concept of what it was. And I taught some very firm truths because I knew them to be truth from God's perspective about about what would happen with life after death. And what I did after my dying is set about proving them to the people that I taught them to. And that took me around 40 days to do that. And, and then after that, I didn't feel there was much more need for me to do it. So uh, they all got the message of what I was trying to share with them at the time. And their faith was very, very strong after that in all of the things that I taught, particularly the teachings that I shared with them about love and God's love. Many of them for the first time prayed after that because before then they just listened to me talk about prayer and they didn't generally pray themselves. But they prayed afterwards and uh, as a result um, I get I got to share um, the divine truth with them. So I share, I share the divine truth with them before I passed and they got to believe it after I passed. That's basically how it worked. And after they believed it, they then prayed for God's love and when they started receiving God's love, then, of course, they could do some of the things that I could do and so forth. And that's what created the momentum that finished up creating what we now know as Christianity. Of course, there's been a lot of modifications since that time, but that was the, uh, it was the underlying faith that they developed during that period after, shortly after my death that caused that momentum to occur. Otherwise, it was highly likely that there wouldn't have been any Christianity at all on the planet if I had not have done that after my death. Thank you. Ever-increasing list of questions. <laughs> so you were in the spirit world for, say, 2,000 years. Yes. What did you do for 2,000 years? My primary concern has always to be to being to grow closer to God. So my very first action, you know, my very first actions were always about that, my personal growth. So I focused uh, all of my energy, as I did when I was on earth, on growing firstly closer to God. The second set of things that I've always been focused on is growing closer to the other half of my soul, Mary, the, my soulmate. So we, I, we focused our attention, particularly that could be done after Mary passed, which was 30 or so years after I died. Uh, we focused our attention on growing closer together ourselves. They were our two primary issues in terms of our personal experience. And then the third, the primary thing that we did, the third primary thing we, we did was focus on teaching God's truth to others. So we spent a lot of time traversing all of the spirit realms that have been created up to that point and teaching, spending time in, with large groups of people and individuals teaching God's truth. Now, in amongst all of that, we got to do many things, of course. So um, after I passed, I, by the time I passed, I had created three new dimensions in the spirit world that didn't exist prior to my passing. So uh, before I became at one with God, which was uh, at the time when, about the time period shortly after the time period where I was baptized by John, and when I became at one with God, I created for the very first time the eighth dimension of the spirit world. And when I say I created, it's really probably not the correct way to say it because God's laws enable the creation of new dimensions. There are a whole heap of mathematical laws that create new dimensional spaces. But you have to enter a condition of love that matches the condition of the space before the space will be created. 
So in other words, God's laws have created the framework for the creation of new dimensions. But someone has to get into the condition of love to enable the dimension to be created. And so in, on earth, when I became at one with God, for the very first time on a, in the spirit world, a new dimension appeared. And that was the eighth dimension. And shortly after I created that dimension, by getting into that condition, Moses and Elias or Elijah also entered the same condition. So they entered that dimension. And every new person that enters a new dimension changes it. They, their personality has an impact on the dimension itself. So every new person that enters a dimension changes. It's a bit like here on Earth. Every if you had if you had people around to dinner, right, and you only invited one other person, then there would be a mixture of your personality and the other person's personality that would define generally what happened at the dinner table, right? But if you invited ten other people around. Now you've got a far greater mixture of personalities. What gets created is going to be very, very different than what was created just by the two people who came to dinner. Well, if you can think of the dimensional spaces in the universe in the same way, when the first person enters, the first is in the condition of love where they can create and then enter that dimension that gets created. And it usually, the dimension matches their personality. So when I first entered each dimension, and I was the first person to enter most of these dimensions, um, these new ones, then the dimension matched my own personality more than anything else. But when the second person entered the dimension, then the dimension matched a mixture of their personality and my personality. And when the third person entered the dimension, now the creative power of the three people created different things in that dimension that didn't exist before when the first person entered and so forth. And then as you get, if you get hundreds or even thousands or tens of thousands, millions of people enter, obviously it makes a huge difference to each dimension. So each dimension in the spirit world is actually changing all the time because of the personalities and natures of the individuals who pass into each dimension. Once they re reach a certain condition of love and can pass into the dimension, their personality and their creative abilities get imposed upon the dimension, which makes each dimension very unique in the sense that if, if I now go back to visit the eighth dimension, it's very different to what I created. Does that make sense? When I first entered it. Because there are now billions of people who have passed through that particular dimension. And so that dimension reflects the characters and natures and personalities of those billions of people rather than just my personality or nature. And each new dimension gets created when you enter the condition of love. So when I entered the condition where I could enter the ninth dimension, which happened while I was on Earth as well, then the ninth dimension got created. And initially it was just my personality that was imposed upon that dimension with a higher condition of love. And I actually had a higher knowledge so I could create more things in that dimension that I could create in previous ones. But then other people followed the process and they entered the dimension and then it vastly changed again. And of course what it is now is very, very different to what it was in the first century when I created it. Then I, the last dimension I created on Earth was the tenth dimension. So I entered a condition of love uh, where that was equal to this tenth dimensional condition and that enabled me to create the tenth dimension. I entered the tenth dimension and that's as far as I got on Earth. I didn't receive any more love than the 10th dimension on Earth in my first century existence before I died. So that took me three and a half years to move from the eighth dimension 
to the 10th dimension in terms of my personal condition. It took me 13 years to move from the 6th dimension to the 7th dimension in, in the 1st century. And then it took me only three and a half years to move from the 8th dimension to the 10th dimension in terms of personal development. Because it sort of, sometimes it speeds up because you've, uh, because you've got more knowledge and also there's a, there's a foundation of knowledge. And so now you can apply that foundation of knowledge to the creation of where you need to go to become more loving yourself. And as a result of that, um, sometimes you can speed up the process of creation as a result. Of course, Mary needed to also engage the same process. And she didn't engage that process until she passed, which was 30 years after my death. And so there was a sort of a period of where I did not create many more dimensions as a result of waiting for Mary to come to the spirit world and also then engaging, helping Mary engage the same process that I had learnt. There was a large discrepancy of knowledge at that time between myself and Mary because of our differences in condition. And Mary eventually absorbed all that knowledge into her soul and as a result um, entered those different dimensional existences eventually. And eventually we entered the same dimension. And that happened after we'd created 30 new dimensions. So that process took nearly 2,000 years of, of learning about love, receiving love from God, learning about the laws of the, of the universe that cr cr control the creation of these new dimensional existences. There's a whole heap of mathematics involved in the creation of the establishment of a new dimension, which we had to learn as well. And so um, this, of course, takes time, and that's what we've been doing in the spirit world. In addition to that, we've been sharing that knowledge with so every new knowledge that I discover. Uh, we've always had the attitude, myself and Mary, that we want to share that knowledge with other people so that they can enjoy the same things that we've enjoyed. So, so our, one of our highest priorities is to share knowledge. So that's why, we, you know, one of the reasons why we came and returned to Earth again is because we wanted to share knowledge. We wanted to share what we've discovered through personal experience. And so we've been doing that all of our existence for 2,000 years, sharing discovering new things and then sharing what we've discovered with as many people who are willing to listen. And not everyone's willing to listen, of course, so you know you can't share it with everyone. But anybody who's willing to listen, we can share it with, and, and as a result, they have had personal growth as a result of that sharing. Yeah. Excellent. Right, so... <coughs> um, is the sound still all right? It sounds great, yeah. Right, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, <coughs> I just think... I don't know if it's possible to even say answer this question briefly, but um, when you say dimensions, um, look at your hand. Tom, sorry, sorry, when you say dimensions, there's a couple of things. So you can you can go down to a lower dimension to help someone. Yes. But what does dimension look like? What, what is it? Can you? Is there physical? Like, is there homes? Is there houses? Do people have? It's usually very easy to explain to a spirit what a dimension is because they are actually living in a different one than what the than the third dimensional space we're living in here on Earth. Obviously, so it's quite easy to explain a dimension. But on Earth, it's very hard to explain a dimension because most people don't have a mathematical concept of multi-dimensional reality. And I suppose you, the best way to liken it is that, you know, most people on Earth think in like in boxes, so, so we call them squares. Or if we want to get really complicated and talk about three-dimensional space, let's call it a cube. <laughs> and 
this is how we think here on Earth. We, we think in three-dimensional space, which is very cubic in its nature. We're very rigid in the way that we see this space and so forth. If you think about it, there are other three-dimensional and a multi-dimensional, three-dimensional shapes that are much more complicated and much more complex. Now, the same applies for dimensional space. So the best way I can explain dimensional space to a person who's limited by the third dimensional, the three dimensions that we currently live in the physical, is that it's lighter occupying space in the same location, but in a, in, in a different form. So, for, so if I can put it to you in, in this way. At the moment, you're sitting in this chair. You have a physical body. And if I tried to occupy exactly the same space as you, uh, there would be, firstly, there's physical laws that prevent me from doing that. There's no way that our two bodies can merge and intermingle with each other. And my, actually, I, I, in my current physical form, I am totally unable to occupy the same space at the same time that you are occupying in a physical form. But in multidimensional space, a person in a different dimension can occupy the same space that you are currently occupying. Right? But they have to be in a different form other than a physical form in order to do so. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, if you multiply that by each possible dimension, that will give you a bit of an example of what multidimensional space is. In that it, it means that, that 30 or 40 or 50 different types of beings can occupy the same space as you right now, with the exception that they must all be in different forms to each other. You follow? Yeah. So, so in other words, if, if I am in the same form as you, I cannot, oper I cannot actually occupy exactly the same space in the universe at the same time as you do. But if I am in a different dimensional form than you, then I can. But let's say I become a spirit who's in the first dimension. I can't occupy the same space as another spirit in the first dimension because we're both in the same form. Does that make sense? But I can occupy the same space as a spirit who's in the second dimension because he's in a different dimensional form. And so what this means is the universe itself is not as... Uh, you know how we constantly think of the universe? The universe is physical. universe seems to be ever-expanding, always changing. They now know that there's dark matter, dark flow, dark energy. In other words, there's all this stuff, energy, matter, and also movement, that they can detect that is occurring. But they have no physical proof aside from mass weights and, other, and, other, and what happens to light and a number of other things to prove that it's possible, right? And so what we have happening in the, if we look at the scientific perspective of, of things, we have happening in this universe that we have physical matter, which we can measure and we can estimate its size. And then we have what they call loosely dark matter, which is matter that we know must exist because of what it does, you know, the gravitational pull that it exhibits and particularly how it bends light and other, other attributes that it has. But we can't actually see it. We can't see that it exists, but we know it must exist, but it just has to exist in a different dimension. So, so the reality is there, is there are many different dimensions, not just a few, but each dimension 
when you're living in it is as solid as the previous dimension you lived in. So, so for example, here on Earth, everything's solid to you in your physical body. Does that make sense? But when you pass into the spirit world, you will go into a different dimension. In that dimension, everything is solid. But when you return to the physical Earth and interact with this dimension, nothing here is solid anymore. You actually see the whizzing around of the different materials that make up somebody's body, and you can pass through them. You can actually pass through and occupy the same space as that physical person is occupying, even though you're a completely different person. And that is because you're in a completely different dimension to them. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And, it's only, yeah. and it's only, it's very hard to get your head around for most people who hear it first, but because most people are not aware, even mathematically, of dimensional space. But you know, so mathematicians have proven the existence of dimensional space, and science, through the uh, through the exploration of the cosmos, has proven as well that there is dark matter, or therefore, you know, different dimensional space with matter that exists in it that we can't see. And what I'm suggesting to you that is that what I'm calling the spirit world loosely calling the spirit world because there are multi-dimensional spaces in this spirit world and that make up our entire universe and so the spirit world exists so the spirit world exists within the same universe that that correct but it's in a different dimension so it occupies the same space but in a different dimensional form but when you enter it you think that is the solid dimension. Anything that's in that one dimension, that, and, and once you enter it, so you being here in the physical form, everything that's also physical is solid to you. But to a spirit who's in a different dimensional form, it's not solid. He can occupy or she can occupy the same space. So she or he can occupy the same space that wall occupies. She or he can occupy the same space you occupy. He can sit in your chair right now <laughs> over the top of you and you wouldn't know any difference because he's in a different dimensional space than you are. Okay, so so if you can, when you're in the spirit world, mm -hmm. if it's quite easy to travel down dimensions, why is it so difficult to travel from the spirit world up back to earth? Uh, it's not difficult to travel from the spirit world back to Earth at all. It's the same, but it, but it, but it's but you would have to be a spirit. You're not going to have a physical body. It's much more difficult to understand the laws of how to materialize a body and actually show yourself as existing on Earth. But as a spirit, it's very simple for you to come to Earth at any point in time. In fact, mo many billions of spirits do this immediately after they've passed. And, and live even for long periods of time, continue to live on the earth until they realize that they're actually in a different dimension and nobody on earth can actually hear them or see them. And often it takes time for that to even occur because if you walk down the street here at Malula Bar in the Esplanade here, the majority of people won't notice you. They wouldn't be able to recall you one minute after passing by you unless there was something that struck them. And uh, unfortunately, it's the same for the majority of us. We, we are very out of tune with our general environment. We only notice the things that are in our immediate desire or immediate vicinity or that have some kind of link to us from an emotional perspective or usually a link addicted with our addictions or something like that. The 
the same applies to any spirit. So the spirit who passes, he might feel attracted to come to earth because he, he, he can only get his addictions met here. However, he, he might not notice that most people don't notice him for some time until he realizes that he can walk straight up to a person, look at them and, and, and talk to them and they don't hear them and, he, and they're not seeing them. And then he can go like this to them and they don't follow him with their eyes. And, 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 and usually, shortly after passing, they do all of these experiments and they realize, wow, something's going on. I wonder what it was. And then they realize sometimes, a lot of the times, what the event was that you know, would be called death because many times they don't even understand what that was. And uh, because it happens so fast and so rapidly and without much pain. And so once they realize that, then they realize, oh, I'm dead now. Uh-huh. And once they realize they're dead, now they know they're in a different dimension. And there are certain people that are solid to them, and there are certain people that are not solid to them. The people who are solid to them are in the same dimension that they are, and the people that are not solid to them are in the dimension lower or dimensions lower than they are. Now, the question you asked was how hard is it to go not only down, well, down is very easy, or to the physical dimension is very easy. Going up in a dimension is the difficult thing because that is all dependent upon how much love we have in our soul. And that requires a growth, a real definite growth in love inside of our soul before we can improve the dimensions that we live in. Now that um, could take many years, sometimes many hundreds of years, in order to make a transition of a dimension from one lower dimension to an upper dimension in existence. It can take many hundred years just to make one transition of dimensions because of the requirements of growth in love and, uh, and, and that you know, obviously takes time for a person to learn about love. And that's why it's difficult to progress upwards in a dimension, but it is simple and easy to do any dimension or visit any dimension lower than your own. And when you you, uh, visit a dimension lower than your own, they don't feel you as solid matter. But when you visit a dimension that is your own, you are always appearing to the other people in that same dimension as a solid being. So, clip it there, Simon. You mentioned the hells of the spirit world. Mm-hmm. What does somebody have to do on Earth to get into them? To get there. Get there. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose the majority of people would rather find out what they could do to get out of them, wouldn't they? <laughs> but let's talk about that. And the hells of the spirit world are the first dimension. The very first dimension of passing is at the moment in quite a very dark condition. There's not much light there. They're often very smelly. There's not much autonomy because most people there do not understand the laws involved with movement of nature, of movement of matter and movement of themselves. And it is very much governed by the things they did on earth as to what's going to happen after that point. So if you do things on earth that are out of harmony with love from God's perspective, and in particular if you chose to do those things on purpose out of harmony with love from God's perspective, you will definitely end up in the hells of the spirit world. You don't, it's not a permanent condition. 
because you can always improve your condition of love no matter where you are. So either on earth you can improve your condition of love or in the spirit world you can improve your condition of love. So you're not limited to that space. You're only limited to that space while your condition remains the same. So a person, for example, let's say a person on earth murdered somebody, for example. And by the way, God's definition of murder is very different to our own. Well, if I can illustrate, uh, from, from God's perspective, a person who aborts a child murders as much as a person who has committed a murder you know, on purpose. If they aborted the child on purpose, then from God's perspective, both are murders. So if a person arrives in the spirit world as a murderer, then they'll arrive in the first sphere of the spirit world in some dark locations. And one of the things they'll have to do to grow in love is to work out why they're there. And usually they can easily be told why they're there, but most people don't want to hear why they're there. And uh, so a lot of times you have to wait until they want to know why they're there and then you can tell them, well, you're here because you murdered when you're a child, and, uh, when you're on earth, sorry. And, and they would say, you know, if it was a person who had committed abortion, they'd say, no, I didn't. I can't ever remember murdering anybody. I would, never, I would never murder anybody. And then you'd explain to them, well, actually, from God's perspective, an abortion is a murder. And you've had three of those. So you have murdered three people, actually, from God's perspective. Now, and, that is, and they might say, and that is the primary reason why you are in this current location. Now, to get out of that location becomes the key question. How do I get out of that location? So we are not permanently assigned to that location. We're only assigned to a location, or our soul, in fact, the correct way to say it is our soul is attracted to the location because that's the location that best suits our current condition. In other words, a hellish location suits the hellish condition that exists inside the soul of the person. In other words, their condition of love marries or matches the condition that they now see externally. And to get out of that condition, all we have to do is improve in our attitudes about love. So, for example, a woman or a man who had encouraged an abortion in a woman has really been a participant in a murder. And they would then be told that, that, uh, look, you've participated in a murder. If it was a man and he tried to force his wife or his partner to have an abortion and he put a lot of threats on her and eventually she went and had an abortion, then a lot of the responsibility of the abortion would lay upon him. And so he would be treated as a murderer in the spirit world. And when I say treated as a murderer, his soul would go to the location where other murderers go. Even if he had a good life after that? Even if he had a good life after that. So unless he has repented or gone through the process of clearing away from his soul the reason why he wanted his partner to have an abortion, Unless he does that, he is not going to grow in his condition of love. He at some point will need to choose to do that, and it's not forced upon him. He has the choice. So he can stay saying, no, I don't believe you, for, for the next hundred years. And if he stays saying that to you for the next hundred years, he will stay in that location for the next hundred years until he works out that maybe me staying in this location for hundred years has got to do with the fact that I've got to face this issue with abortion being a murder. Does that make sense? Once he faces that issue, he will want to know generally what to do about that. 
once he wants to know, then usually spirits come to him, other people come to him and share with him what's going on, what, why from God's perspective it was treated as a murder, what happened to the child, the harm that was brought to the child. This, it, they might even be introduced to the child, you know, that he's already in the spirit world, obviously, and show them, and this child has the opportunity to talk to their father or mother about, you know, how it affected them, how the abortion affected them in their life, and that helps the father or mother realise, well, oh, yeah, I see I created pain. I wasn't necessarily aware of it at the time, but I did. And eventually that father or mother will want to go through a process where they feel sorry for what they did generally, and they want to work out why they did it. And, and for a lot of it, it's fear of all sorts of things. So many women who have an abortion are afraid of safety and security. They're afraid they're not going to be able to look after the child. Many men that encourage abortions are selfish, basically, and they don't want to compete with the child for the woman's affections, for example, or things like that. So there's all sorts of reasons why the person might have engaged it. And there are literally thousands or even hundreds of thousands of reasons why a person might do such a thing. And they'll have to find the reason for themselves why they did it. And they'll have to go through the process of discovering that in order to become more loving. And when they become more loving, they'll be able to progress to a new location in the spirit world, into a new condition and therefore a new location. And that location is going to be much better, happier, more freedom, uh, more ability to express themselves. In the hills, it's uh, very dark and very grey. But as you progress, in, even in the first dimension, at the top of the dimension, it's very colourful like it is here. In fact, it's very similar to here, the first dimension at the top of the first dimension. It's very similar to what we see on Earth. So you progress through the dimension until you hit the point of the top of the dimension, and then you have to make a transition to get to the next dimension. And the transition is usually a major thing. It's something major you have to learn. And in the case of the transition between the first and second dimension is the transition in fear that you have to learn. So in other words, you have to let go of fear being your dominant uh, God, if you like, you know, the thing that rules your life. And, uh, and once you let go of that, you can make, and you've dealt with all these compensatory effects of all the things you did wrong, you can enter the second dimension. And the second dimension is just like unimaginable for most people here on Earth already. That's far different to Earth. Uh, has you have far more control over your being, your life, your, your, you know, how you get around everything. And so it's very, very, like a lot of people want to stay in the second dimension for a long time after they've been in the first dimension because it's so enjoyable, you know, compared to the first. So that's how you progress out of the hills, but it's also how you get into them. How you get into them is by taking actions out of harmony with God's definition of love, not human's definition of love. So that's the sticking point for most people. We on earth have a definition of love that is out of harmony with God's definition of love. And so often we think we're doing loving things when we're not actually doing loving things at all. And as a result, we enter into the first dimension having to learn that those things weren't loving at all. And that takes time to learn those things, bearing in mind that we can only learn it using our will. It's never forced upon us. So it's not like somebody comes along and says, you naughty boy, you know, you did all these bad things on earth and because you did all these bad things on earth, I'm going to chuck you in a prison and, and I'm going to educate you, you know, and browbeat you for the next, you know, six months, 12 months, year, two years of earth-based life. Uh, until such a point in time as you realize what you did wrong. Nobody will do that with you. You have to come to your own um, acknowledgement and awareness of what you've done. 
and that takes people a lot longer than if somebody got them by the scruff of the neck and gave them a slap around a bit and told them, look, this is what you've done wrong, you know. Now, if we pass um, in the sorry, spirit... Eddie, uh, sorry, Uh, in terms of lighting wise, just that last bit. Yeah. Yeah, so of course, how a person enters the hells is by living out of harmony with God's definition of love. But of course, God's definition of love is very different to our definition of love. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Not many people want me to say this. <laughs> Actually, it's amazing how many people are blocked to that concept. Because it's like, they go, what? What? What are you saying? You know, and when we give seminars, it's pretty amazing how many people go, what, what are you saying? Like, you're saying that my definition of love is flawed? Mm. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So how a person enters the hells is very much about their condition of love. But, but it is God's definition of love and not their own that determines where they arrive in the spirit world and where they arrive in the hills. And because God's definition of love is very, very different to our own definition of love, often we have a lot to learn about love when we pass into the spirit world as a result. Yeah. Um, so. I'm get it. I'm just, it's a tree that's blocking me at the moment, so I'll just try and stay out of its way. Unless we just shift over that way. I'll just go, um, just reach back. Oh, you'll be permanently right. Yeah? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned, um, because I'm sure there's going to be lots of people that have had an abortion, are watching this now, that are going to be terrified. Of what, or what, angry of what happens after <laughs> yes there is no understand that we can always change our condition of love at any time this includes why we live on earth so if a person hears me state that about an abortion and they've had few abortions themselves then they can work through the emotional reasons why they chose to do such a thing and they can look at their internal justifications for taking actions that finished up harming the life of another being and and in particular another child, another human being. And and so what they could do is choose to grow in love while they're on earth and actually work through the reasons why they did such a thing. And in fact that would be my recommendation to all people that anything that they've done that's unloving, notice what it was, choose to do something different now. Choose to take action, choose to see choose to choose to make a different choice and move in a different direction from now on but also choose to look at the reasons why you took such actions because if you don't do that now you will be faced with those reasons when you pass that's how god's created the universe excellent thank you um so if someone was to have an abortion mm -hmm. And then you said that the parents can meet the child in the spirit world. So mm -hmm. do people still age or grow? How does that work? They do. Uh, any miscarriage or aborted child um, is received in the spirit world like a baby, um, but it's much, much smaller. I don't know if you've ever seen a premature child where you, you, you see the developing fetus. I've seen some as small 
you know, on Earth, some as small as you, as the palm of a person's hand, and yet they've managed to survive. Uh, it's very rare, of course, but but of course these little, very small abortions and and miscarriages have uh, very very tiny children. But because of the genetic structure, and remember, I t- I've said in other answers to other questions how God's made a heap of laws about growth and how growth occurs, the absorption of nutrients and materials from the surrounding environment. These kind of things, are, these kind of places are created in the spirit world where the child can continue to grow and the child does continue to grow into an adult um, in the spirit world through that, those processes. So there is no such thing as the termination of a life, but there is the termination of will. In other words, a person who's uh, had an abortion on earth has chosen to terminate the expression of that child's ability to use its will. And as a result of that, 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 and that is something that's out of harmony with God's love. And as a result of that, there will be compensatory effects that their soul will go through. I mean the soul of the person who chose to harm the child that they'll have to go through in order to correct the unloving condition that caused them to make the choice. So um, this is something that each person who's done anything on earth will need to go through. And many of the things on earth that are taken as normal, God doesn't treat as normal. So like termination of a child, for example, is, is pretty much a normal thing in many Western countries at this point in time. And yet God doesn't view it as normal. God doesn't view it as something that's in harmony with love. There are many other things that are taken as normal on the earth, like drinking. Alcohol is taken as normal on the earth. You know, having a good old Barney with the wife is taken as normal on the earth, you know, having a fight. None of these things are normal from God's perspective. They all involve things that are out of harmony with love. And as a result of being out of harmony with love, there are always going to be some correction that has to occur in your future once you pass into the spirit world.